0: Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? I'm your host, Brett Kane, a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor, and helping me explore this question this week is my meditation coach, Neil Taylor. Neil is one of the teacher trainers over at Dharma Moon. If you've listened to the David Nicktern episode, then you'll be a little bit familiar with Dharma Moon, but it's a platform. That is seeking to continue the teachings of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and also help people figure out their entrepreneurial uh, directions in life while mixing Buddhist principles as well as just kind of smart business making. So what's really cool is Neil and mine, our paths are very uh, interlocked and there's a lot of resonance in that While he's also a meditation instructor, he's also a massage therapist, as well as yoga instructor as well, which I intend on getting into later down in the path. So we have a lot of similarities, and as soon as I met him, I felt a sense of kinship and understanding of the things that he was offering people and the spaces that he was cultivating. And for me, it was a no-brainer to invite him onto the show and to share our experiences on massage therapy, but also what it is for us to be meditation instructors. Uh, So in this conversation, we talk a lot about the idea of generating awareness and cultivating attentiveness and how important that is for pretty much every aspect of life. And um, we talk about how all of our offerings actually interweave and how they're all really going for the same goal. Uh, we talk about uh, the nature of impermanence. We talk about a whole heap of things in that sphere. We do touch up on some Buddhist principles. And overall, I think it's a very usable and uh, user-friendly conversation that really invites you into the world of work that cultivates awareness. So I do have to say upfront that there is some technical difficulty in this episode in that my remote recording service that I've been using this entire time has been giving me a lot of issues. Uh, there's been three out of the past five episodes have had some audio bugs that is completely out of my control, and I don't realize it until the episode's already recorded. We don't hear it while we're talking, and I've reached out to them, and it's the first time they've ever heard these kinds of issues, so they're trying to work on it, but in the meantime, I have switched over to a new service, so I'm really sorry. Uh, There's about 10-15 minutes of audio on Neil's end that gets kind of digitized and, um, Maybe a little difficult to hear. So I would just advocate for using it as a moment of meditation to really listen to the words that are coming through. I mean, you can definitely understand him and really just be present with what he's actually saying and go beyond just the, the layer of quality and actually get the wisdom that's being shared because I think it's actually a really important part of the conversation and and it hurts my heart that it was cut up in the way that it was. And I tried to do my best to kind of fix it and smooth it out. But yeah, I have switched my audio service at this point just because I don't want to gamble. And I want to make sure y'all have the best possible quality to really absorb the words of my guests, because I really believe in every one of them and their platforms and, uh, that it, this week's guest is really no different. So I'm really sorry up front. Thank you so much for bringing, um, bearing some patience while i work through this and try and figure out the best possible services to be using to streamline this experience and we're all learning we're all stumbling forward together so thank you so much for your patience i really appreciate you if you hang out till the end i really do make the show for you which you'll know if you hang out till the end i say it every week and i've said it every week since i've started uh i really really appreciate any support that you're giving with your attention it really is uh a great benefit of my life to be doing this show and to be supported and to be seen and uh, to be able to slowly increase my vulnerability with all of you and just kind of bear my soul through this and help my guests bear their souls and uh, learn the the art of hosting and uh, I, I really am in it for the long haul. So thank you so much for being here at this iteration of the show. So if you want to support, if you want to help us grow this thing, head on over to Apple Podcast, give us a review, it really does help. Uh, rise through the algorithms it helps me get more acclaimed guests not that i I honestly think every guest i've had has been stellar i I don't really know if that's the reason why i want reviews but uh, it helps more people tune into the show and it helps spread the word of what we're doing here so that's how you can help you can subscribe over youtube like us on facebook instagram all those things keep you plugged in on every new episode every new update i do have some really fun things coming up that are maybe going to change the format, and uh, I'm excited to roll that stuff out maybe in May, maybe early June. We'll see how that goes. Uh, all of Neil's info is down in the links below. Get, keep in touch with him. You can do the virtual mindfulness meditation training with him, or you can reach out to me uh, if you like my candor. Um, it's uh, 21 Vitalism at gmail.com. Uh, like I said, today's guest is awesome. I rely on him to guide me through any sticky points in my own practice and I trust that you're going to get something really potent out of this conversation because it really is an important conversation we really got to be putting awareness front and center and uh he helps me do that so uh, without further ado please open your hearts drink some tea do some stretches and welcome neil taylor Neil Taylor. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me, man.
1: Brett, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah,
0: I've been looking forward to this one. I I knew as soon as I like met you and worked with you, I was like, yeah, he's gonna be on the podcast. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of (laughs) when. So I'm glad that we could set some time today. Uh, so yeah, uh, for the folks who may not know of you, I met you through Dharma Moon's mindfulness meditation teacher training, and I would consider you my coach, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I maybe David's a teacher. You're also a teacher too. I don't. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out the roles with that. But yeah, yeah, you are a man of many hats. So you are a mindfulness meditation instructor. You're a yoga teacher, a musician. And newly added to that list is massage therapist. So Uh, I mm -hmm. I feel like if you started a podcast, you would put me out of business because that's all the things that I do. (laughs) So I'm kind of curious, what is the connective thread between all of these different practices for you?
1: Mm, That's a great question. Well, it's interesting because the music has taken a bit of a backseat. Um, lately, and I really just pick up my bass or sit down at the piano here and there just for fun. Um, so um, the music is actually sort of just like a, a way to take the load, uh, take a load off, if you will, at this point, uh, it used to be how I made my living. But with the with the body work, with the yoga, and with the meditation, I'd say that the the kind of common thread is awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, they're all awareness practices. Um, In yoga, certainly a lot of body awareness. Um, In body work, it's sort of an extension of my yoga practice in that when I'm working with a client, I'm aligning through my own bones to transmit weight into them in a way that is aligning with their structure. So it it just sort of feels like an extension of the practice in that way. Uh, and that element of attention and awareness is there as um, my bodywork mentor describes it. It's being a meditative manual therapist. Whoa, I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's a sweet line. So I, I decided to lift that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, And then, you know, the the Dharma practice, the meditation um, is kind of really where for me, um, I sort of cultivate the qualities that I want to bring to my work as a body worker Um, and the awareness and attention that I develop on the cushion um, certainly informs very strongly how I practice yoga. Um, So I would say that if there was a foundation for it all, it's it's the sitting meditation practice for sure. Um, And I could even look at my yoga practice and my my work as a as a body worker as um, post meditation, Hmm. Um, but sort of a more formal post meditation, Um, as you know, in in our tradition, we kind of talk about your time on the cushion as being meditation and everything else off the cushion being um, post-meditation. But there's for me, there's something, I guess, more formal, for lack of a better word about the yoga practice and the bodywork practice than say um, how I wash the dishes, you know, which I try to do mindfully. Um, How I shave, which I didn't do today um yeah does it does that kind of touch in on
0: yeah your question yeah i think uh having just said awareness that that really does encapsulate mm. kind of even like my approach to all of these things as well and it's interesting that you mm. kind of have your meditative your traditional meditative practice is kind of like your input and then you have your output of the yoga and the body work mm. and For the folks who aren't really familiar with this world where we're saying things like awareness what exactly do we mean when we say that like we're cultivating awareness that might be a foreign concept to some people
1: yeah that's a great question um and i think a lot of people in the beginning um whether they've just started a meditation practice or they haven't at all um there's often a conflation between attention and awareness. Um, So the best definition I've heard for attention, uh, which I'm going to sort of define first, because I think they are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, The best definition I ever heard of attention was the ability to place the mind on an object. So when we're doing our meditation practice, that object might be the breath. If someone's playing music, the object of attention might be the the notes they're playing or the or the rhythm. Um, and then awareness is sort of a more spacious knowing quality. Um, so, you know, like in the Satipatthana Sutta, sutra, depending on if you want to use Pali or Sanskrit the original sutras on mindfulness from the discourses of the buddha one of the things he said is as you're breathing in know that you're breathing in as you're breathing out know that you're breathing out and i'm definitely paraphrasing quite a bit (laughs) but that's that's the general gist of it and so for me awareness is sort of this knowing quality being aware of something like um i'm attentive to the computer screen and the conversation that you and I are having. But in my awareness, like I know that a Jeep just drove by. Um, And I know that there's like a blue sky and it's not raining out. Mm -hmm. So um, to me, awareness and attention are worth differentiating. Um, And at the same time, attention makes us present enough that we recognize that awareness is actually already there. Um, the way David once put it is that attention is like the edge of awareness, um, or it's like the arrowhead of awareness. So it kind of has that very direct, precise, almost piercing quality and kind of pierce through our discursive mind, um, our distraction, um, and kind of pierce through that and land us where we actually are. And then when we do that. Um, awareness is actually already there mm. oh, I love
0: that so <laughs> your philosophy with body work would you say that you're training both awareness and atten- attentiveness within your clients or does that specific modality kind of favor the cultivation of one of- over the other
1: um well just to make sure I understand your question um, when you say training w- do you say within my clients or with my clients
0: like training within your clients, like what you're offering, is it more the ability for them to develop attention or awareness?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I think they go hand in hand. Um, and in the way that I've been taught, um, you kind of want a little bit of both because if all you have is attention, it's kind of like a tunnel vision type of thing. Um, where you're so locked into something that, you know, you don't notice that a Jeep just drove by, right. Um, You don't notice that there's like a beautiful blue sky and there's, there's a lot that we could miss out on in life if we don't have that element of awareness. Um, So when I work with people one-on-one, whether it's, um, you know, in body work uh, or in yoga or in meditation, um, I wouldn't say I choose between the two, but, um, I use them both, sort of as, um, again, two sides of the same coin. Yeah.
0: Well, it also seems like, as you were saying, there's kind of the downside of if you're too attentive, then you become hyper-fixated to a point where you kind of become locked down and just like the hyper-fixation. But then if Mm you have too much awareness without the attentiveness, then everything is just open space. And then I could see that being really hard to actually kind of enact or manifest the things that you're trying to do in life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very well put. I, I agree completely. Yeah.
0: So how did you find your way to this path? How did you find your way to cultivating awareness and working with the mind? What, was, what were some of the first steps when you were like, oh, there's something to actually be learned here?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have to kind of go back to... The first person who introduced me to meditation um, was actually an acupuncturist um, that I went to see. And it turned out that uh, he had studied for years as a Zen Buddhist priest. Um, And this was a little over 20 years ago when I was in high school. Um, And so he just introduced all of his clients to meditation, it seemed, as far as I know, um, from the way he talked about it. So that was sort of my first um, introduction to it. And then sort of still within the Zen world, um, right after high school, when I was 18, I went on a retreat with Thich Han. Whoa. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't really admittedly know who the dude was. <laughs> um, I had like a, one of my close friends was going and I was like, this sounds really cool. I think I'm going to go too. And then a third friend of ours was like, well, what am I going to do this summer? I'm going to go with you guys. Um, And so we all went and it was kind of a life changing and profound experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, to just be really steeped in what he calls the energy of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where it started for me. Um, And then around that same time, I discovered yoga uh, kind of by accident. I was just like looking for some sort of exercise to do um, and I try to practice and um, it sort of became pretty apparent when I was in Shavasana for the first time that I wasn't just, you know, exercising. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a whole lot more to it. Um, and from there, you know, I was off to music school. Mm-hmm so the the dharma and the yoga kind of became um, the background um, and the music was the main focus Um, and as years went on i made my living as a musician Um, but eventually um, so the yoga and the dharma were like kind of banging more and more loudly on the door of my mind (laughs) (laughs) you know I, i sort of like some seeds had been planted and they were coming to fruition um and so I just felt more and more drawn to it. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint a specific moment, um, but certainly there was people that I came across that um, had a big influence on me. Like the first person who taught me to sit, Thich Han, um different yoga teachers I worked with. And then um, as I started to teach yoga, I met David Nickturn. Um, and that really reignited my meditation practice in a big way. Um, and I haven't really looked back since.
0: Yeah. So do you still, do you sit pretty much every day?
1: Oh yeah. 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 What's
0: your practice uh, look like, like time-wise? Not that that's the biggest thing, Mm -hmm. but.
1: Yeah, it's typically I sit for an hour. Um, if there's a day where I just have to be up really, really early, um, it might be 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, sometimes I'll miss a day like anyone else. Uh, sometimes I'll sit twice in a day. Uh, and I think it's um, important to go on retreat um, if you're kind of serious about the the path and the practice, um, because there's something about just having that parenthesis in your year or uh, maybe more than one parenthesis in your year, where you're just completely steeped in practice. There's no emails you have to write. There's no um, you don't have to go to work. You don't have to you know mail a letter or do anything like that. It's just um, pure practice. You can go a little bit deeper. There's a little bit of um, attentional momentum that you might develop. Uh-huh. Um, just like as sometimes if you spend a little more time on the cushion. Um, you might go a little bit deeper into your practice. It's like that, but on a, on a bigger level, so to speak. Yeah.
0: I noticed within my practice, it definitely feels like there's certain gates that you end up passing through the longer you sit. Like mm. if you're not really used to longer sits, like the first 20 minutes could just be agonizing. Mm-hmm. But after like after an hour and 20 minutes, then you have just a completely different open space that you're actually in. Mm. And it's like the the depth and the way that that unfolds is really fascinating to me. And yeah, I could see how going into retreat and kind of getting, I could see there being maybe like a sense of whiplash, like the first day is that first 20 minutes where you're like, <laughs> oh, what have I done? And you're yeah. just constantly in your storylines and the momentum of your Uh, just your thought patterns. Is that kind of how that will play out?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a really good way of putting it, whiplash, Um, because there is the momentum of our life and the culture we live in. And then retreat is sort of, it it almost feels like a full stop. Mm -hmm. But kind of like whiplash, um, sometimes the effects of it aren't felt right away. Um, So what I've noticed is it's sort of more like the third or fourth day of retreat, is like where you could sort of start to really feel it yeah because um, the first day or two you're just sort of settling in getting oriented um you know figuring out where like the cafeteria is and you know going going for walks to get the lay of the land and getting to know the teacher if you don't know them already and then yeah it's like then when you've really sort of settled in that's when i noticed there's that sort of hump yeah on the third or fourth day yeah you know?
0: So I wanted to go back a little bit because this is something I've heard Mm -hmm. a lot of people talk about. When you said with Thich Nathan, you were immersed Mm -hmm. in the energy of mindfulness. And I Mm -hmm. I feel like I've heard David talk about this with like Trungpa Rinpoche and that like everything he did steeped with mindfulness. You know, every movement just had so much grace and fluidity to it. How would you explain Mm -hmm. that energy if anybody has never experienced that?
1: Hmm. I mean, my first thought is that I don't know if it can be explained in words. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you just explained it really well, um, referencing what David has said about Trump Rinpoche, but um, I I guess what what I would describe it as is um, sometimes when you're around a person like that who has had a lifetime of practice, you get the sense that they don't check out as much, if at all. Um, you know, like you and I and, and most people, if we sit down to meditate, we'll notice that we get distracted quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if we look at our daily lives, we probably notice that we're in and out. You know, we're, we're lost in thought and then we're, we're back in the moment. Um, so with with folks like that, with like a guy like Thich Nhat Hanh or Trump Rinpoche, Um, I think it would probably best be described as it. And I never met Trump or Rinpoche. Uh, he passed away when I was four. Um, as far as I know, I never crossed paths Not this lifetime. But, um, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I think maybe just a sense that this person doesn't check out. Yeah. Um, that they're, they're really here, like really grounded, really stable, really present. Um, the sound that david often makes when he talks about it is uh i think the sound he makes is <laughs> <laughs> i love that it you know, sounds like a david yeah.
0: sound for sure <laughs> <laughs> there's something about checking out that i find to be really fascinating because i'm sure most listeners can em- empathize with this and i, I definitely can mm. I, I really liked david's term of like walking through the daydream Mm -hmm. you know and like this idea that like there's so much of our being and our energy that gets kind of hidden and like obscured through checking out Mm -hmm. like we could be interacting even right now like there could be a part of you that's thinking about like well what am i gonna eat for dinner (laughs) like that's like an energy that's like being reserved from being present with the moment Mm -hmm. and i feel like there's there's people who have a keen insight like i am just never here you know and Mm. that's just really interesting like the energetic uh tendency that gets caught up in that as well.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think um, I'm glad you brought that up about people who have that sense that they're never there, because the fact that they're recognizing that they're not present is the very skill we're trying to cultivate in meditation. Um, So when I teach beginners, and they recognize how active their discursive mind is, um, I actually think that's a really good thing they are they're often um find it a little bit unsettling, um, because they've never actually looked at their own mind. Um and I think it's often the case that people who sit for the very first time and seem to have the impression that their intent uh, their attention is perfectly stable are in for a rude awakening <laughs> if they keep practicing. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think if someone notices how distracted they are right at the beginning, um they might actually have like a talent for meditation yeah. rather than being um, not good at it, if that's their yeah. perception of it.
0: That's what's really interesting is that's most people's takeaway. That's something I, I've taught a few people now at this point, And I've had a few students who they were like, I thought the entire time. Mm. I'm like, well, that's kind of like the point of like the container of meditation is it gives you a start and end point to where you can kind of assess mm. where it's like it's the first time you may have had that moment of like looking back and Oh, my mind was super busy for that stretch of time. You know, but a lot of people take that as like a loss mm. when really it's like the art of coming back, you know? It's like the more times you fail, it's actually the success, you know.
1: Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. The analogy I often give to people is like weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you go to the gym and you do one bicep curl, right? That's not that good of a workout. You actually have to let <laughs> You know, you have to let the weight go back down and then lift it up again. So it's like each time you get distracted and come back You know, that's like one more bicep krill for your brain, so to speak.
0: Yeah, well my brain is mm. super scattered So I must be the best possible meditator there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a thousand times like you're thinking again like oh, yeah, that's right mm. more gently than that, but um, yeah, so what what are some of the, the phases? Are there phases with mindfulness? I don't know where I'm at with the practice, if I'm being honest. I feel like I'm at a point where I almost said that I don't really have any questions to ask, but I guess I'm asking you this question. Mm-hmm. Is there kind of a, a self-referential deepening that you can kind of like, oh, I'm relating to this in a different way? Is there something obvious that we can kind
1: of hang our hat on? I mean, I would, it's tempting to kind of look for benchmarks Um, and it's tempting to want the progress of your practice to unfold in sort of a neat sequential orderly manner. Um, but I think it rarely ever does. Um, you know, I think it almost might have on one level cycles like seasons. Um, not that predictable, but days where you're very distracted and days where you're not, um, in the Tibetan tradition, they say there's two kinds of mind. There's still mind and moving mind. Now one can get to a point where the attention is stable enough that thoughts can come and go without getting lost in thought oftentimes what we're noticing in our practice in the beginning is, oh, I was lost in thought. I was thinking about X, Y, or Z for I don't know how long. And I just sort of had this like moment where I sort of had like a micro awakening. I just realized I was gone and now I'm back. Um, But as attention and awareness get more stable, it might start to be a little bit more like, okay, this is still mind. This is moving mind and I'm not lost.
0: So, would you say it's possible? I mean, we can be lost in thought, but can you be found in thought?
1: Ooh. Well, I would say, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It really does sound a lot like the Thich Nhat Han approach to things. Like I, I, I've read a few of his books, and it's always kind of been about like, mm-hmm. stop trying to do this or that, and like welcome your anger over for some tea. And like, it was very much like looking directly mm. at the thoughts. And I think that that's something that yeah. a lot of people who start to meditate kind of uh, have like a misidentification with, is that they think it's a practice mm. to suppress mm. thoughts. And that's right. like really not what's happening. There are some practices. Could you speak to those practices and maybe how they could be beneficial in a way?
1: Um. So, you know, in... The Theravadan tradition, which I haven't done a lot of practice in, there's something called jhana states, um, which basically involve reaching such a high level of concentration, like very, very single pointed, um, that certain elements of experience completely fall away. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, they <clears throat> do not advocate for that. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition it's a little bit more like perpetually opening we open to what's arising and then we continue to open and then more arises and we continue to open and it's sort of this uh, more and more spacious expansive quality but with an element of attention with this element of actually really being there for it all um so you know different strokes for different folks, Mm -hmm. right? Different approaches from different traditions. Um, But I think um, because thought is the hardest aspect of experience to not get lost in, um, there's a huge benefit in the approach that we advocate for in the beginning, which is to just label your thought as thinking and come back to the breath because you, the mind kind of perceives through contrast, right? Like I was lost, now I'm awake again. I was lost, now I'm awake again. So you start to get a feeling for what it's like when you're you know, more wakeful, when you're more present. And as you get a little bit better at distinguishing that you might be able to bring that wakefulness, that present quality to whatever is arising in experience, whether it's physical sensations like breathing whether it's uh other body sensations whether it's feelings emotions or even thoughts
0: mm. it kind of seems like a, a little bit more of a subtle and nuanced approach and i, I i'm not mm. like using this as a means to talk down of other practices but this really does to me speak to like mm-hmm. the western mind like this seems like the perfect salve for the hyperactivity that we kind of find ourselves in and mm. I, I, I really like Trungpa Rinpoche's uh, phrase of spiritual materialism, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like it is really easy and sticky for some practices to be used in that way, to where, like, I I'm gonna reach the third formless jhana, and then just like, okay, but your bills aren't getting paid, <laughs> you know, and like your girlfriend's mad at you now, and like your dog hasn't eaten, and mm. I almost feel like mindfulness is like it just cuts through all of that. I don't know if that's
1: Yeah, and you know, and I think um, I I don't want to comment too much on other traditions only because um, I I think there's a lot to be learned there. Um, You know, in our culture that you mentioned, that's a very distracted culture. um, From what very, very little I understand about neuroscience, um, for example, when there's something when someone has like ADD, for example, there's a part of the brain called the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, I believe. And it kind of goes offline when someone's experiencing that. Um, And from what I understand, like a concentration practice really helps to strengthen that part of the brain. So I really think it is, you know, not to repeat myself too much, but just different strokes for different folks. Um, And you know there's just a lot to be offered and in a way i feel like all these different traditions whether it's tibetan buddhism zen or theravadan buddhism it's all the same lineage to me it all it all goes back to the buddha yeah um you know so i love that yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i like the idea that we can not appropriate buddhism but like morph it to the society that it finds itself in Mm -hmm. when i had david on like we were talking about pretty much Mm. every intricacy of that and like how we need to be able to make it fresh while also like honoring the tradition and the history that it came from so that we don't like that's kind of where my hang-up is as a teacher is like i want to use my own words and my own lexicon but i also really want to make sure that i'm actually saying the right things and pointing to the the proper functions and that are being on offer you know and that's something that i think Mm. is just a really fascinating aspect of right now and with buddhism in the 21st century
1: you know yeah yeah i agree and it's it's very exciting because um you know when buddhism made its way out of india to china it you know it mixed with that culture and became chan buddhism and made its way to japan and mixed with shinto and became zen buddhism and uh, made its way to tibet and you know um mixed with their culture and um, that's where the vajrayana came from um and obviously it's gone to other places as well but as it comes to the west i think what it's mixing with um is you know on one end science western science and that to me is really exciting because i think um there's a lot that the scientific community can learn from these wisdom traditions and there's a lot that the wisdom traditions can learn from science and they can um perhaps in a way keep each other in check from becoming dogmatic um and so i feel that we're in the very early stages of that right now uh And, you know, we still don't know a whole lot about the brain. Um, And I don't want to conflate mind with brain too much. Um, But, yeah, it is a very exciting possibility to to ask what Buddhism in the West is going to look like in 200 years, 300 years, Um, because it's still kind of like a little bit of a seedling.
0: So you didn't want to conflate mind with brain, but isn't the brain the thing that generates the mind?
1: Oh, okay. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So (laughs) here's the debate, right? The scientific materialism view is that consciousness arises from matter, which is essentially what you were just saying. This hasn't actually been proven. Um, It's a deeply held assumption or intuition, but not all assumptions and intuitions prove to be true. Um, It's just very, very deeply held, um, yet still unproven. The view from certain sects of Eastern mysticism is sort of the opposite that matter arises from consciousness, which um, can almost be a sort of a somewhat jarring thing to try to wrap your head around. Um, That also hasn't been proven. Mm -hmm. Um, So the most accurate and honest answer anyone can give to that question, I think, unless they've reached an incredibly high level of realization, Um, I think the the best, accurate, most honest answer someone can give to that question is, I don't know. Okay, you passed the test. Cool. Okay, (laughs) does he got the answers?
0: I don't know. This could end the whole thing right here. Um, I think it's really interesting when you, if we're just looking at mine, I mean, let's try and create some variables and some distinctions within the human experience. Mm -hmm. When you put the human experience through any sort of real torque, mm-hmm. so you either I mean, I think the things that generate the most torque, like strong dose of a psychedelic mm-hmm. substance dying, mm-hmm. um, like childbirth, these things almost you all you always hear these like reports of people who end up coming back and they're like, Oh no, consciousness is first. Mm-hmm. You know? At least and whether or not that's something that's just the brain's interpretation of an experience that it can't really fathom like the the limits of understanding um or whether or not that's like the real thing like i wonder if we can actually ever get to a point where we can prove this like the thing that's doing the proving is the thing that's trying to be understood like the eye can't see itself that's like alan watts 101 you know
1: yeah 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 a knife can't cut itself right Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's just really interesting that there's still a lot of similarities and the people who've done the most work, you know, the people who have been actually sitting in mountains for 80 years meditating, like they hold this view and Mm. it's like, I don't know, like, can our instruments really match the experience of like, giving your entire life energy to this singular pursuit? You know, Mm. I'd like to hope maybe I mean, Shinzen Young thinks so. Um, Yeah, I I read uh, the Science of Enlightenment on your request, mm. and yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I really thought the first half was very useful, and the second half got really uh, nebulous. <laughs> like after, yes, that's a good way to describe after it. After he started bringing in the nuances of impermanence and um, mm-hmm. what was the thing like the uh, the power of gone and all that, mm-hmm. that's when I was like, I don't know if I have the experience to align to his words, but yeah it did show me that impermanence is not and this i think your words it's not like the nihilistic okay one day you're you're dead and everything's gone and it's just over you know and Mm. yeah do you think you could touch up on that for the folks who i think a lot of people they look at buddhism and they're like oh yeah suffering's a thing and impermanence everybody dies that's kind of like the 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 back of the book you know without diving in
1: Mm, mm, yeah well um yeah i'll definitely touch on that but i also wanted to kind of link that to something you said earlier about um trying to present the practice in your own words and in the own context in the context that you're living in while still honoring the tradition and i think that's kind of what you pointed out about shinzen Yang. it's like he studied as a monk he meditated for thousands of hours um and The reason he's able to put things in his own words is because he has the experience on the cushion and in life to be able to just simply describe what he's actually experiencing. So I I think teaching, um, you know, you have to study, practice, contemplate. Those are like the three pillars. Um, And then your way of describing things and presenting things uh, might unfold naturally. You know just like if you um ate some food that no one else has ever eaten right you'd have to do your best to describe it um but they're never going to really know until they just take a bite of it yeah yeah, yeah. um and then the, this just to touch on the question that you've asked me to touch on um yeah i think sometimes people hear like suffering impermanence like buddhism is all bad news <laughs> but it's more of, um, pointing out that we ignore those things, right? Um, that we avoid our own discomfort, um, that we try to solidify our life and the experience of being human in such a way that when impermanence really rears its head in a major way, we're completely kind of shook and, um, shocked by that Um, and you could say that it's bad news that they're suffering in life Um, but i think what's worse news is ignoring reality you know and um and there's like an upside to all this stuff because that's just the first noble truth and then the second noble truth is well there's a root cause to our suffering which is that We have this emotional reactivity to what arises in experience we want to ignore some things grasp onto other things and repel other experiences and then the third noble truth is that we can actually bring that to an end that suffering can have cessation and then the fourth noble truth is you know the eightfold path and and here's how we can start to do that um and then even you know if you just look at impermanence it's pretty easy to see the upside of it like we're in a pandemic, but at some point it's not going to be as bad as it is right now. Um, and in a lot of ways, at least here in the U.S., it's better than it was several months ago. Except for Michigan, where um, I'm from. OK, <laughs> that's, that's I true. I got fire here. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah There and in, in India, I think. I have a friend living in India right now. Um, but, you know, um, I'm just going to dive into politics for a second and then dive back out. Um, for most of us um in the dharma world um i'm just going to take a a leap here and assume that a lot of dharma practitioners and yoga practitioners weren't huge fans of donald trump right um and like his time in the white house was impermanent like it's over he's gone maybe he's going to run again in 2024 i don't know but um you know impermanence has an upside and a downside um
0: yeah I think the less of a working relationship that we have with impermanence, I mean, we're really just shielding ourselves from even like the good things in life. Mm -hmm. You know, because like even when you're enjoying like a nice ice cream cone, like we're not thinking about like the end of the ice cream cone. We're just so enraptured in that moment that we kind of become fixated on it in a way. And then when it's done, you're like, oh, well, now I have to Mm. get something salty to eat to like balance out this ice cream cone. And I feel like if you were to start that ice cream cone with okay this is going to end like there's no need to like grasp on to some solidified secured access in the future it's just this is a temporary thing and i feel like if we approach a lot of things in life understanding that they're temporary even our relationships at some point everything's going to end it kind of allows you to get more sweetness out of it not in like a clingy way but it helps you just kind of be present with it you know
1: yeah i agree completely i think um experience and life in general is precious because it doesn't yeah. last um and you know if you're, you're eating that ice cream cone a lot of times you go for the next bite or the next lick so quickly because you want to keep the, that experience flowing but you might not have really fully experienced the first bite um you know like if you bite into a strawberry you notice that it goes from sweet to tart to sweet to tart again and there's so much nuance and um, impermanence even just in one bite of food even in um the flavor of something it's kind of constantly percolating and changing um and just to bring it back to Shenzhen young who we both seem to appreciate um he often describes um craving as the result of an incomplete experience <laughs> yeah whoa yeah i
0: remember that wow that's cool i think there's another part of it that people don't want to look at the idea of impermanence and as a result we invest a lot of energy in defending against it against the reality of it and it A lot of times we structure our entire life narrative as if there is going to be no end. Mm. You know, we want to secure this, like, safe, indefinite future. And like you were saying, like, we're not having the action steps to be able to, like, handle those kind of sometimes dramatic endings with any sense of, like, grace. Like, that was – are you familiar with stoicism at all? Uh, Very little. Very little. There's – a book called The Good Life by, I think his name is William Irving. And like the key stoic thing is to think about death a lot. Like that's the thing. And everybody's like, Oh, that sounds terrible. But for them, it gave them such a raw experience of life. And like they were living way beyond the measures of uh, the, the like, average person. And I just think like the energy that we invest in impermanence is going to be invested regardless. It's just a matter of if you're using it for you or against you (laughs) you know
1: yeah yeah that's a good way to put it yeah and uh i'll have to check out the stoicism stuff because it sounds uh like there's a lot of crossover with with the buddhist view Uh, and that's the wonderful thing about wisdom is that it's not you know you can't copyright wisdom it's uh it's just there
0: to be discovered except for this podcast is totally copyrighted don't ever (laughs) quote from it this is it i own it i'm just kidding (laughs) But that that was kind of one of the reasons why I, I sidestepped into Stoicism. And as I did, it was a couple of years ago, but if you read uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, mm-hmm. it goes like hand in hand. It's very like fundamental, just like he, being a human being. And that seems to be like what wisdom is addressing, right? It's just how to be the most human that you can be. And,
1: yeah, I mean, I think wisdom is similar to awareness in the sense that it's sort of there. Um, but I think wisdom also ripens over time, um, at least on the level of relativity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't know if this path of stoicism emphasizes this, but um, in Buddhism, it's really like two things, it's like wisdom and compassion. Um, and to me, those, those things go hand in hand and um and it, it's also like, you know, you only have to cultivate two things.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. That makes it startlingly yeah. easy. Um or simple, not easy. It's anything but easy.
1: Yeah, well said. Yeah.
0: Do you think we in America, like at a societal level, do you think we value wisdom?
1: Hmm. Um I think some of us do, some of us don't. Um at a societal level. Yeah. I mean it's interesting because um I'm gonna dive back into politics again. Here I go. Um know Joe Biden was not my first choice not my third (laughs) yeah he wasn't my third either Um, but I feel like there's a lot of wisdom coming through with him Um, and he's governing in a way that I really didn't expect Um, and you know I think those of us who are on the younger side um, we want the pace of change to happen faster than it usually does Um, and I think someone like Joe Biden might recognize that the pace of change um, doesn't always happen as quickly as we want it to and that there's um, a lot more nuance to it. Um, And so I I don't know if we value it as a culture, but we certainly elected a really old dude. (laughs) So maybe we do.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's typically what I feel like we associate with wisdom is age, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, he's not much older than the prior president. And I don't think like... Like, wisdom is something that is grows in time, but there's definitely, like, paths that people could take where, like, they find all the creative ways to block out the wisdom, <laughs> and I'm not really sure how that happens. Well,
1: I, I, I would venture to say that a lot of it is conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think Donald Trump probably grew up um, in a household that was sick, even if they had a lot of money. Um, and you know, it can't be a pleasant experience to live in his skin, yeah. you know. Um, and, you know, from the Buddhist perspective, everybody, everybody has the seed of awakening in them. Um, but I think we also have to be pragmatic, you know, and not have what Trungpa Rinpoche called idiot compassion, where you you let someone continue to behave in a way that isn't healthy for anybody because you're just wanting to be nice all the time. You know sometimes the most compassionate thing is to kind of put your foot down and and take a stand yeah. and you know not put up with uh, that kind of crap
0: yeah. so in, in your idea if all we really have to do is cultivate wisdom and compassion mm-hmm. and i think people get kind of a sense for the presence of wisdom i don't know if we really have like a lot of cultural narrative on like what compassion looks like mm. I know that a lot of, there was kind of the narrative during the pandemic, like the essential workers are like the heroes and these compassionate figures, but like, they were like kind of forced to do everything they were doing. (laughs) Uh, How, how do we, how do we cultivate compassion if if we feel like we don't have like a native on board direction in it or compass towards it?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think it starts with the first noble truth, um, with being willing to turn and face your own suffering. And to be able to experience it um, with a little bit of curiosity, um, and try to develop an understanding of what it really is. Um, because then when you see someone else suffering, you say, ah, I, I know what that is. Um, I've been there. Um, and you start to see yourself in other people. Um, so I think you know it's like going from the Hinayana, working with yourself. Um, and in a way, the Mahayana is just a very natural progression to, you know, working with others and having that be the basis of your practice.
0: So what about the folks who are working in, say, like, uh, like activism circles or outreach circles mm-hmm. or in the medical system who their job is to, on paper, help people, but they don't have the con- contemplative practice where they've actually looked at themselves? Is there a form of compassion there yet, or can you be doing good for people not from a place of compassion but out of maybe moral responsibility
1: or it yeah i mean i think it could be a little bit of both i think compassion is you know with all things in the buddhist path um, none of it is imported Um, the idea is that the seeds of all this stuff is already in you Um, and it practices a little bit like watering the seeds Um, and there might be some people who are naturally um, you know maybe gifted with compassion and maybe that steers them towards uh, a certain line of work, um, and you know I don't think you necessarily have to meditate an hour a day to be a compassionate person. Um, I think there's going to be different paths for different people, um, and it's a good question to ask whether or not moral responsibility or the feeling of moral responsibility uh, can be divorced from compassion. Um, there's certainly possibly cultural and societal pressure to be a moral person. There's a structure to the culture we live in. Um, but I don't know that you can separate it completely from mm-hmm. compassion. I think on some level, uh, they can both come from the same place. Wow.
0: So for you on your own path, do mm-hmm. you feel that learning bodywork is a form of cultivating compassion?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's where compassion can turn into action. Um, you know, it's like we resonate with someone, we understand what they're suffering with. Um, And I think if we approach a client, you know, we we have to have boundaries, of course. Um, But if we don't, you know, recognize that, okay, this person is suffering uh, and out of compassion, I'm going to act. um, You know, for me, that won't really work. Um, That's just not how I'm wired. Um, And and I do think people get into the field of body work um, because they want to help people, you know. I don't, I don't know that there's any other reason to do it. What about you?
0: I, I think it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been interested in Dharma for a while now, not in like a way where I was engaging with it. I was reading books and mm-hmm. um, it was really like getting well read on trauma work that actually gave me a potential like channel to start mm. using the cultivated compassion and awareness that I was getting from my reading and my practice and, yeah, it just led me really neatly into body work. Yeah. It was either I go get like a doctorate to go be a therapist or I could side skirt all that yeah. <laughs> and work with people's bodies mm. for nine months, you know. And I was like, that's the way. Mm. Um, yeah, and for me, it really feels like a foundational practice. Um, it's interesting that like meditation was your first thing, but I was probably more invested in body work before I was in meditation, mm. but... I started to see, at least for my own, the space that I had to hold in order to have good treatments yeah. was really similar to the meditative space. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had to be very aware of where my mind was at. And the moment that I would lose connection, uh, if I started thinking about something else, yeah, like, wait, where's my stroke going? You know, like I would literally lose touch with the other wow. person's body and ultimately their nervous system. Mm. So it, it's interesting that we're kind of working... We're, like, going parallel past each other, you know, in the different directions. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, bodywork has been one of the most, like, life-altering things that I've done next to maybe starting this podcast, mm. being able to, like, interact with people and get my thoughts out there and be seen. But, yeah, it's it's an incredibly powerful, powerful thing, and there's nothing like it when you have somebody come in who has, say, like, a neurological disorder and they're constantly convulsing or twitching. And you're able to slow everything down for them. Like the feeling of connection that comes with that when they like see you. And it's it's not like a self-validating like, oh, I'm this good guy. But it's like I was able to take my cultivated practice and apply it skillfully. And to me that supercharged something in me that I think every body worker should probably be feeling. Though I'm sure there are some that don't
1: yeah well and i think that if um you know in any line of work someone can get jaded and lose touch with that but i for me Mm -hmm. caring about other people is a pretty good north star yeah and and that yeah
0: could Mm -hmm. lead
1: to one's approach to bodywork changing completely and going in a different direction um but yeah i think it's good to have some sort of principle like that that can be a guiding force Mm -hmm. in life
0: so how's your practice developed uh, I know that you you got licensed uh, bodywork practice, that is. Uh, I think oh, it was yeah. uh, last year, you said? hmm Yeah. yeah. How, how have things been with that?
1: Uh, pretty good, considering um, that I started my practice during an era of pandemic, social distancing, and economic collapse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I work a few days a week at uh, a massage clinic that somebody else owns. Uh, I work a few days a week at my own private practice um and then i see private yoga students private meditation students uh, and i teach some public yoga classes and then i'm in some teacher trainings so as you mentioned i'm sort of like a multi hyphenated individual um so at some point my work will shift out of the um massage clinic and more into my own practice as that starts to grow which it is which is really nice to see um and at some point sort of these different streams um like yoga and meditation and body work i think will start to merge um i do at some point want to start practicing yoga therapy mm. um and i'm not in a huge rush to do it because i don't think you can as someone smarter than me once put it rush the unrushable mm-hmm. um yeah. but that's um uh, that's a direction i see myself heading in yeah yeah do you
0: think there's a creative way to mix the mindfulness with massage have you thought about how these worlds can kind of collide
1: yeah i have thought about it a little bit and i think um i think there's definitely creative ways that they can be mixed and um and that could get you know solidified or or codified into some sort of a method um where it's at the forefront um But it can also be operating in the background, as you and I were just talking about, that you're actually bringing a meditative awareness to the work you're doing Mm -hmm. um, so that it's a post meditation practice. It's an extension of the practice um, where these things intersect more directly um, is an interesting question to continue contemplating for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about how I could mix the modalities of like having a meditation student get a massage and then maybe guide them through, not like necessarily like a guided meditation, Mm -hmm. but kind of like have them place their attention into like have them be meditating while they're receiving the massage and to like really, really feel the sensations and Mm. help kind of increase the sense of awareness of where their body is at. I could see that being pretty powerful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, because it's one thing for the therapist, therapist to be training in awareness. Um, it's another thing if the the client is as well. And then in that sense, they're a lot more invested in their own healing. Um, and that could be very empowering for them. Um, and I think a lot of folks don't really recognize um, the power of awareness and how helpful it can be in one's own body. Um, a lot of our tension is habitually held, you know, um, people who lift their shoulders a lot because they're stressed and they don't even know that they're, you know, engaging their upper trapezius. And it's like, as you become more aware, your body might start to let certain places relax that you didn't even know you were clenching. Um, and so, yeah, awareness is the game changer in my view.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think people really fully understand like the healing potential of it because so much of I've been trying to think of a way to word this and this might be spilling the beans too early, mm-hmm. but I feel like so much of your personality is expressed through your musculature. Like not only like where you hold your stress, but like heartaches, like when you're going through an experience like this, you you mm-hmm. assume certain postures and unless you process that energy effectively, you're gonna lock it into that posture. And then months are going to go by and it's like your right arm is mm-hmm. still going to be feeling that thing. It's still in there because you haven't processed it, you know. So by raising the awareness of where you're, how tense your muscles are, you're also understanding yourself. You know, you're able to see a, a wider perspective of who you are. You know?
1: Yeah, very well said. I agree completely. Yeah,
0: yeah. I just it, it is kind of hard because... At least I'm finding in my practice in West Michigan, which is fairly conservative. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's a lot of opportunities for an expanded view of this kind of thing. Um, mm. People's view of massage therapy is literally go in, get this relaxing massage, or like treat a medical thing. But like to have them become engaged, I think is really the next step. And I think so much, de- it's a completely different practice when they're also engaged with the process and that's what i think i really like about your platform is you're you're doing the yoga so not only are you doing the massage but if you also bring yoga to them and then you're teaching them to feel into these centers that you've kind of given attention to Mm. you're creating there's all these neurological pathways for people to access their own inner truth of who they are you know and it that's my biggest thing is like let's equip you with the tools to not have to see me anymore everyone likes a massage but how about we don't need the massage know?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think it's um, that's a really skillful way to look at it, because I I do think there's unfortunately some therapists out there who um, are so focused on client retention, um, that helping the person solve the issue is, you know, secondary. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you should try to massage your way out of a job, so to speak yeah Um, and in and in doing so you develop a certain amount of credibility because people start saying i went to see brett and i was having this issue with my shoulder and now i'm not having that issue anymore you're having something going on with your back you should go see him he really helped me yeah um and so i think um being honest and um unattached um can be really good business principles too it's That's definitely
0: the thing that I've thought of when I first got licensed was that I don't want a business that relies on repeat customers. I would much rather have like success stories that I could then like get my reputation up that way. Um, Mm. what was I just going to say? It's right there. It happens every (laughs) now and again.
1: Yeah. Well, if it, if it's good, it'll come back.
0: Yeah, apparently it wasn't that good then, I guess.
1: Well, it might come wow. back after the recording. You never know. Yeah,
0: as soon as we hit stop, <laughs> it's going to be right there. Oh, my God. It was right there. Oh, my goodness. Well, can't clamp down too much. Yeah. We are at uh, 58 minutes, so okay. um, I want to leave you some time to talk about where people can find you. I don't know where you're operating from. Mm-hmm. I've known you for a bit now, but I don't know where you're at. Um, yeah, how could people kind of plug into your platform?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm operating in the greater Boston area, a little outside of Boston. Um, NeilTaylorYoga.com has my yoga offerings and it links to my bodywork website, um, which I've chosen to keep separate for now just to make booking a little easier. Uh, And they can also check me out at NeilTaylorBodyWork.com. So Mm -hmm. NeilTaylorYoga.com, NeilTaylorBodyWork.com. And then I also work with David Nicktern at Dharma moon, um, teaching meditation and, um, and working with him in the teacher trainings and other workshops. So, um, you can find me over there as well. And, uh, yeah. And then you can find me on this podcast, which has been such a pleasure. So thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: of course. And you do virtual meditation, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do uh, meditation over zoom, um, working one-on-one and stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Neil, this has been a pleasure. It's been really good to see you again. Uh, it's been too long. I will definitely be booking another session with you very soon here. So
1: yeah. yeah. All right. sounds, sounds great, Brett. Well, it's been yeah. a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Of
0: course. Be well. You too. All right, my friends, that was the episode. Uh, That was my good friend, Neil. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. I truly do make this show for you, Uh, especially these episodes that have a little bit of audio difficulties. I'm telling you, I'm self-conscious. I don't like doing it. I don't like putting it out there like that, but I didn't want to cut out what we talked about, as you can tell if you made it this far. It was some good stuff. There was some good stuff in there, and I think uh, it's worth hearing even if you have to strain to hear it so thank you again so much i I really truly appreciate you and am committed to putting out the best possible show that i can so i will continue to do so and continue to troubleshoot and continue to work uh very tirelessly for your uh, ease of listening so thank you so much uh head on over to apple podcast give us a give it that review i wouldn't say it unless it really truly helped uh you can like us over on facebook instagram subscribe over on youtube if you want to stay in touch with the platform we got a lot of fun guests coming up that uh they're gonna blow your socks away because they blew my socks away i don't know where my socks are you notice that you always miss one sock i don't know what happens with that but uh yeah that's life so all right have a great week y'all see you soon